Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, author, and property investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. In this podcast, we're thinking about property renovating and how to make property renovation profits. And this is part two. In part one, we talked about renovating in a general sense, and I started to run through my 10 top tips for making renovation profits. So if you haven't listened to that podcast yet, it probably makes sense to pause this and go back and listen to that one first. But before you do, I just want to say thank you to everybody who's been sending me messages saying how much you like the podcast and how valuable you're finding it and how much information I'm giving you. It's great to get the feedback, so thank you so much for that. But I wonder if I could ask you a favour in return. How would you feel about actually going back to wherever it is you get your podcasts from and leaving a review? That would be brilliant, so thank you for that. And also, just to remind you, if you want to know a little bit more about me, Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, you can go to my website, www.thepropertyteacher, all one word, thepropertyteacher.co.uk, and you'll find out all about me there, and there's resources there and all sorts of stuff. So anyway, let's crack on with this podcast. In this part two of Property Renovation Profits, I'll go through the rest of my 10 top tips, starting at tip number four. But before I do, as a quick recap... In the last podcast, I pointed out that property renovation profits isn't just for anyone wanting to flip. In other words, to buy a property and do it up and sell it under profit, although that is all good stuff. It's also for anyone wanting to buy to let, to buy a property, to renovate it, to put a tenant in and to hold on to it. Why? Because the renovation will hopefully increase the rent or at very least make the property more rentable and so reduce your voids and increase in your returns. But we aren't just renovating for a future potential tenant. Initially, it's likely that the most important person we're renovating for is the valuer, because our plan should probably be to renovate the property, increase the value, and then refinance after the works are done. In this day and age, that will have to be at least six months after we've bought the property because of what's known as the six-month rule. And if we've added enough value to the property, we should be able to refinance to get all or most of our money back out again so that we can then use it to go and buy more properties. So let's get back to my 10 top tips for property renovation profits. I covered tips one to three in the last podcast. So here's top tip number four. Know how much value the works will add before you start. Before we do any works of repair, renovation, modernization and improvement, we need to be sure that they will add value. That is, unless there are other good reasons for doing the work, such as we're obliged by law to undertake them, for example, or we think the works will increase the saleability or the rentability of the property, even if they don't add value per se. A question I'm often asked is, how much value do individual items of repair, renovation, modernization, and improvement actually add? Well, remember, I said in the last podcast, Cost does not equal value. It's important to remember when planning to refurbish a property that the cost of the refurbishment will not always be directly reflected by an equal increase in value. Just think about the kitchen I referred to in the last podcast. 
that probably cost about £20,000. Now, a typical terraced house in that street at the time was probably worth about £60,000. So spending £20,000 on a kitchen wouldn't make it worth £80,000. In fact, because the kitchen was so OTT and so out of keeping, it might actually have even reduced the value. If the owner had known what they were doing, they could have fitted a kitchen for around about £2,000, and that would have been perfectly good enough, perfectly in keeping, and that probably would have added some value. So, if cost does not equal value, it's very likely that you could spend money on a property, but not increase the value by as much as you spend. And in some instances, you may even detract from the value. But looked at the other way, this also works in our favour because it also means that we can spend money on a property but disproportionately add value to the property. In other words, increase the value by more than we spend. So increasing its equity and therefore our wealth and the profit that we're going to make on the property. I often get asked if there's a list anywhere or a website which shows how much value different works of repair, renovation, modernisation and improvement add to the value of a property or if there's a formula we can use to work out how much value is added. Unfortunately, it's not as simple as that. In property, it rarely is. The amount by which any work of repair, renovation, modernization, or improvement will add value to a property will almost always be market-driven and will depend upon the demand, the requirements, and the expectations of the market in your gold mine area. Let me illustrate this by using an extreme example. If you put central heating into a terraced house which is located in an area of extremely low demand, perhaps because market conditions at that time are extremely slow or depressed, and where there's a glut of terraced houses on the market, you may not add any value at all. The property may be just as hard to sell with the central heating as it is without it. In this area, under those market conditions, terraced houses are hard to sell, full stop. Now, as I say, this is only an example and I'm not stating a general rule or saying that this is the case in your area at the moment. This is totally hypothetical. But in our hypothetical area, new central heating might make the property easier to rent out, but it might not make it easier to sell. So in my experience, there are no hard and fast rules. The amount by which any work will add or reduce the value will depend upon market expectations in that particular area. And I want to stress that it will be area specific. I said last time in podcast number one of this series that creating an extra parking space where I live might add no extra value at all. But in London, adding an extra car parking space might add immense value. So there's absolutely no point in emailing me and saying, Peter, how much value will central heating add in my area? Or what about a conservatory? Or what about a new bathroom? Or decorations or whatever? Because it's going to be different in every area. But having said all of that, I was interested to see a few years back that the Nationwide published a special report in which they gave advice on how much an improvement can add to the value. Now, it's true that they've got a very large survey sample of properties which they can research and extrapolate their figures from. But even so, I'd be wary about relying too much upon general guidelines. So I'm really just quoting this for fun and for illustration. If you're a details person, don't think of this as being an unbreakable rule. It's not. It's just their ideas looking at their data, some figures which they've come up with. It's not a universal law across the UK. But in summary, this is what they suggested. They suggested that adding a bedroom and a bathroom through a loft extension 
could add 20% to a property's value. They suggested that extending to accommodate an extra bedroom could add 10% to a house value. And they suggested that adding an extra bathroom could add 5% to the value of the average home. But I want to say it again, there are no hard and fast rules. It might be different in your area. So how do you know how much value a particular improvement is going to add to the value of a property? Well, the best way to find out is to go on to Rightmove or wherever you find your sold prices and look for properties that have been renovated to the spec that you're thinking of and see how much they're worth. It's just direct comparison. That is going to be the easiest way to find out how much a particular improvement is going to add to the value of a property. So going back to my extreme example about the terraced house, what I would do is I would look at a terraced house which hasn't got central heating and then I would look for sold details to find out what price properties with the central heating are currently selling for. Now, of course, it may be that you can't find that direct evidence. It may not be quite as easy as that. How else can you find out? Well, do you know, I would have no problem just picking up the phone to local estate agents and telling them what I was doing. And say, look, I'm, gonna th I'm thinking about this buying this house to refurb it. By the way, I might want to sell it on, in which case I'm assuming you might be interested in selling it. But this is very early days. What I want to do now is just work out exactly what I'm going to be able to do to the property. If I was to put central heating in, what difference do you think that would make to the value? And actually check with the people who are in the market each day, every day. Peter's top tip number five. Be clear on how much the works will cost before you start. So again, there's no hard and fast rules as to what the works are going to cost. The amount you pay will depend upon where you're located. It'll also depend upon the size and the quality of the property you're working on. It'll depend upon the quality of the work that you instruct. It'll depend on how many quotes you obtain and how hard you negotiate with your contractors. And it'll even depend on where we are in the economic cycle. In downturns, builders are far more likely to be looking for work and are far more likely to discount prices. But in hot markets, when builders are busy, it might be hard even just to get them around to give you a quote. Just to give you a rough guide, and this is only a rough guide, here are some of the prices that I would expect to pay if I was refurbing my properties up in the northeast. If you know my story, you'll know that I mainly buy properties around the Newcastle area. But you have to bear in mind that prices will vary greatly across the country for the reasons I've just given. So this is just what I pay, but it'll give you a rough idea probably of what we're talking about. So here's a very brief list of some of the main improvements and repairs and modernization that I would do. So central heating for a two to three bedroom property up in the northeast, I'd probably be looking at around about sort of three, three and a half thousand, four thousand pounds max, really trying to get it done for about three thousand pounds. New windows and a new front and rear door for a two bedroom or a three bedroom property, probably around about, I don't know, three or four thousand pounds. Unless I buy the windows direct from a manufacturer and then get my builder to fit them, in which case they'd probably be nearer £2,000 to £2,500. Rewiring a two-bedroom property, round about £3,000. A new kitchen fitted by my builder, 1500 quid, including built-in cooker and hob. And yes, that's for everything, including my builder's labour, so 1500 quid the lot. Mind you, the properties which I tend to buy up in the northeast, they're not that big, so there isn't scope for a massive great kitchen. A new bathroom fitted by my builder, five to six hundred pounds, including a three-piece bathroom suite. Tiling the bathroom, well, that can be quite expensive, sort of three hundred to five hundred pounds. 
decorating a two or three bedroom property, probably around about the £1,500 mark. And then carpets for a two to three bedroom rental property, 1000 to 1500 Now, as I say, that's just what I'm paying up in the northeast. I don't know where you are in the country. Undoubtedly, if you're in London, you're going to be paying more than that. But you probably shouldn't be paying or thinking of paying as much as maybe you would have imagined before you listened to this podcast, because generally speaking, you can probably do things cheaper than you think. As long as you buy in the right places and as long as you find the right contractors, you will be able to do refurbs probably much cheaper than you think you can. And if you're worried about pricing up your refurbs, this is something which comes with practice. The more refurbs you do, the much better idea you're going to have as to how much they're going to cost. I know that's obvious. I wish there was a quicker solution. There probably isn't, but it's one of those things. You have to get out into property and you have to start doing it. And the longer you do it, the better you're going to get at it. But it kind of links in with Peter's top tip number six, which is take professional advice to be clear on what work is required. And we could also say, and to be clear how much that work is going to cost. Because another question I'm often asked is, do I need to get a survey before I buy? It's a great question, but the honest answer is, I don't know. I don't know what properties you're going to be looking at. I don't know what condition they're going to be in. I don't know what your level of experience or knowledge is. I don't know how good you are at spotting defects and interpreting what they are. So if you ever ask me that question, the default answer has got to be, hasn't it? Yes, get a survey. So then they'll say something like, well, can I just rely on the bank's mortgage valuation? After all, I should get a copy of the report. The difficulty is that firstly, the surveyor or the valuer is only liable to the bank and not to you. And so if the bank's valuer does miss something, and if you buy on the basis of the report, which doesn't mention what they've missed because it can't because they've missed it, then that's tough for you because you're not going to have any comeback. The second difficulty with the bank valuation is that the level of inspection for a mortgage valuation is much shallower and much less in-depth than it would be for a full survey. The valuer won't be doing the kind of stuff that you'd want a, a surveyor to do if you wanted to unearth all of the defects. And then the third main difficulty for our purposes is that the surveyor or the valuer won't be costing any repairs, even if they spot an item of disrepair. They're not going to tell you in the bank report necessarily how much it's going to cost to rectify it. What they may do instead is that they may suggest that the bank puts a retention on the loan. In other words, the bank holds some money back and doesn't lend you the full amount of the loan. If the property is in what they consider to be very poor condition, which sounds like a great property to me, but if it's in a very poor condition, they may say that the bank should hold back the whole loan until you've done the refurb works. And so any figure which they put on for a retention isn't necessarily telling you what the cost of the work's going to be. It can be a very arbitrary figure. But having said all of that, I suppose using the bank valuation is probably better than not having anything at all. But there is another level that we can go to, which is sort of in between the two, and that's what is called a home buyer's report. Now, the inspection is more in-depth, more like a survey, but not quite at the level of a survey. But the report is on a kind of pre-printed template, which makes it quicker and easier to produce, and therefore that reduces the cost quite a bit. But again, the surveyor won't necessarily be costing repairs, which is what we're going to be interested in. Now, if you instruct a surveyor to do a full structural survey, you can ask them 
to put an idea of indicative costs on for the repairs. Now, the only thing which I'd say about that, and I can say this because I am a chartered surveyor and so I can be completely honest with you, I wonder actually how many surveyors are actually involved in organising repairs to the extent that they'd actually know how much the cost would be anyway. They're probably just guessing, which frankly is probably what you would do if you went around and did your own inspection. The only difference is, I guess if there's a surveyor going around, they're more likely to spot something than you are. And if they're doing a full survey, then obviously they can start doing things like pulling carpets back and stuff, which you can't do when you're inspecting a property. If you start trying to move all the furniture and pull carpets back and start sticking your screwdriver into the skirting board to see whether there's any rot, you're probably not, not going <laughs> to go down too well with the vendor or the estate agent who's showing you around. But before you actually get to needing a survey... What I would suggest you could do is try and take your friendly builder around with you so that they can have a look at the property and give you the heads up on what they see and give you an idea of how much it's going to cost. Now, please be clear on this. I would not take them on every viewing. You know, if you're going to organise 11 viewings on a Saturday morning and try and get your friendly builder to go out with you and then you don't end up buying any of them, guess what your friendly builder's going to say the next weekend when you say, will you come out with me again? They're not going to want to do it. So don't try and take them on every viewing. You're just going to wind them up. Try to take them only to the properties that you're going to make an offer on. And preferably take them to the property before you make the offer so that you can then take their costings and their opinion into account when you actually make the offer. What if they can't get there before you make the offer? Well, I would be tempted to make the offer anyway, but make a stab at the costs yourself. Then get them around to double check to make sure that you haven't missed anything horrendous and get them to tell you what they think the costs are. And if you were quite a long way out and if you think you haven't factored in enough of the costs, then would I renegotiate? Well, probably, but a lot of that would depend upon how much rapport I actually had with the agent. I'd probably be quite apologetic about it and I'd probably say, look, I'm really sorry, but my builder's been round. He saw some stuff which I hadn't seen. I've really got to take it into account. I'm sure you understand. Then, assuming that the property is still ongoing and the agent's still talking to you and the deal's still there to be done, probably at that point I'd get the survey. If your agent or the estate agent is still being a bit snotty with you, by the way, I would probably at that point just blame the surveyor anyway. So, yes, the quick answer is always get a surveyor to do a survey before you buy. But if you can... Until you get good at looking at properties yourself, which is going to take practice and it's going to take experience, which is going to take time, then until you get to that point, then take a builder around, if you can, before you make the offer and before you actually need the survey. Now, just remember that no matter who looks at the property, whether it be a builder or a surveyor, some problems are actually impossible to spot until you get stuck in, until you actually start taking the property apart. You may not know that there's a particular defect. So having a survey should cut down on the number of nasty surprises that you have to deal with, but it probably won't cut out all of the nasty surprises that you have to deal with. I mean, that's just life, isn't it? And there's no way around that. Peter's top tip number seven. Search around for the best finance for renovation projects. Now, one of the big problems that we're going to face as property renovators and refurbishers, especially if we're buying the property as a buy-to-let to do it up and to then let it out, is that if we want to buy the property using a buy-to-let mortgage from the very beginning, many lenders require a property to be habitable from day one before they'll advance a buy-to-let loan. Many buy-to-let lenders are reluctant 
to advance mortgages against properties which require even minor works of repair, modernization, or improvement. The rationale behind this is that in lending on the property, they're taking the potential income into account, and they want to see that income is going to be coming in as soon as possible. So if the property requires repair or modernization, there won't be an immediate stream of income, which puts the lender at risk if they ever had to repossess. Don't forget, all they're ever really concerned about is what happens if they have to repossess. For this reason, many lenders will insist that the property is in a lettable condition or a habitable condition from day one. And as a consequence of that, I've seen instances where loans have been declined based upon the valuer's comments when he's inspected the property for what would usually be considered fairly trivial reasons. However, the good news is that some lenders will lend on properties requiring a limited amount of renovation or refurbishment. But this is another reason why you want a good broker on board, because this is all very much a grey area. Different lenders have different criteria and different interpretations of what habitable means. Some of them will just say as long as the property is wind and water tight and as long as the kitchen and bathroom are functioning, then we're fine. Others will want it to be in pretty good nick. So you take your choice, really. And it's not just about the lender. It will often come down to the valuer and what the valuer is feeling on the day and the comments that they put on the report. They're either going to say, yes, as long as it's wind and water tight and has a functioning bathroom and kitchen, we're good to go, that's fine. Or they'll say, look, it's wind and water tight, but I'm not happy about the functionality of the kitchen and the bathroom, even though somebody is patently living there and using them. And so I'm going to make a £10,000 retention. What does that mean? Well, it means that the bank would lend you all of the money, but they'd hold £10,000 bank. Can you afford that? I don't know. Or it could be that the valuer will report back to the bank and say, look, I'm happy with the property being wind and watertight, but I'm not happy with the functionality of the kitchen and the bathroom, so I'm going to recommend that you retain, put a, re a full retention on, retain the whole amount of the loan. So that could be a bit of a blow, couldn't it? If you need to borrow 75% to buy the property and the bank says, well, actually, we're not going to lend you any money until you've done the refurb, that could well kill the deal. And that does happen. The trouble is, until the valuer and the bank do their stuff, you won't actually know what the outcome is going to be. But a good broker should be able to steer you towards the lenders who will give you the greatest chance of getting the loan. Now, one way around all of this is to not buy the property with a buy-to-let loan from the very beginning, although that is a valid route and it's certainly something which I've done and something which I still do. But another route could be to, for example, use a bridging loan to buy the property. So you buy the property using a bridging loan, then you would do the work. And then when you've done the work, you'd switch from the bridge to a normal buy-to-let loan. Now, you'll usually have to hold the bridging loan for six months because of the six-month rule. But as long as you've been talking to your broker, and as long as the broker knows exactly what you're trying to do, they should be able to line up a conventional buy-to-let lender, which you'd then switch on to. It's a bit more expensive, but it makes things happen. Or alternatively, maybe if you don't want to do that, instead, you could actually buy the property for cash. That might be your cash if you're in the lucky position of being able to buy a property for cash. Or if you haven't got the cash, nothing to stop you using a JV Partners funds and buying a property for cash. Then you would do the work. And then when you've done the work after six months again, because of the six month rule, then you would again switch to a normal buy to let loan and then you'd pay back your JV partner. All of that is good and will work. Peter's top tip number eight, carefully consider 
whether you should do some or all of the work yourself. Now, if cash flow is going to be a problem, you might be tempted to try and reduce your costs by doing all the work or some of the work yourself. And although that might look good on paper, if you're not experienced in a particular trade, or if you're refurbishing a property after work or at the weekend while you're still trying to hold down your 9-to-5 job, this really can be a false economy. Inevitably, it'll mean that the project's going to take longer. And if your DIY is anything like mine, it means that the quality of the work really will suffer. Now, those in the know will tell us that we should avoid doing the donkey work ourselves. Otherwise, when we work out how much we've earned on an hourly basis after we've spent days, evenings, nights and weekends slaving away over soggy wallpaper and lumpy plaster, or worse, we'll find we've only managed to create ourselves another job. And depending upon how much work there is to do and how long it takes us to do it, we might find the uncomfortable truth in the view that job stands for just over broke. The trouble is, if you try to do as much of the work as you can yourself, you will inevitably slow the project down and you'll increase the costs in the long run. This is because you can only do one job at a time. And also, unless you're already a skilled craftsman, any job's going to take longer if you do it yourself than if you get somebody in to do it who knows what they're doing. There's the strong possibility that the quality of your work isn't going to be as high as that of a professional, with the ongoing risk that once you've finished, you might just have to get somebody in to redo what you spent hours or days attempting to do, which is exactly what happened to me with my first refurb. Instead, decide from the beginning that you're going to get the experts in. Yes, you'll have to pay them, but unless you're in the trade yourself, you'll find that they'll do any job far more quickly than you and to a much higher quality. In fact, if you plan the project properly, you can have one, two or even three trades on site all at the same time and considerably speed up how long the project takes. Much better than trying to do it all yourself one bit after another. Time is money. And while you're working evenings and weekends trying to get the job done, bank interest or looked at the other way, the opportunity cost of your funds, if you used your own money, is quietly ticking up and your profits are gradually being eroded away. Personally, I don't think you should do any of the work because your time is better spent doing other things. But if you do do any of the work, don't forget that you should allow for a notional charge for your own time when you're calculating or estimating the cost of the works. If you don't cost out your time, you'll just be robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're just fixing the figures. Your time is a valuable resource and it should be accounted for. And the same is true with interest. Even if you buy the property for cash and fund the building works with your own money, you must allow for notional interest payments. Otherwise, you really are cooking the books. So that includes making a notional allowance for interest on the cost of the refurb. You'll have to allow for the opportunity cost of using your own money. Because after all, if you didn't use it to fund this project, it would be invested somewhere else, for example, making another return somewhere else. Peter's top tip number nine. Don't forget you might be eligible for grants. Don't forget you might be eligible for grants from the local authority or other statutory bodies depending upon the status of the property and the type of repairs you're doing. But equally, don't forget it might take a considerable time for your application to be processed and for the grant to be released. But if there is money on the table and you can use it, you may as well apply for it and see if you can get it. Some local authorities offer grants to bring empty properties back into you, so it's always worth giving them a ring to see if any funds are available. Up in the northeast, for example, where I have my bulk of my portfolio, 
one or two of the local authorities up there offer a cheap loan to property owners to bring properties which have been empty for more than six months back into use. Newcastle City Council actually does give you the money. A while back I was doing a title split where I was turning a house into two flats and the local authority empty homes officer actually came to me and offered me money without me even having to apply for it. All I had to do was, once I'd finished the works, was send in invoices proving that the works had been done and paid for, and they gave me a lump sum of money just for doing actually what I was going to do anyway, which is turning this property, which had been empty for a while, from a house into flats. Another grant which you probably can get, worth looking into, is that there's all sorts of grants available for insulating properties and making them more energy efficient. All of this stuff helps, particularly if you're going to be doing a number of refurbishments. And Peter's top tip number 10, don't overlook the small things. Do make sure that before you start your project, you carefully plan the order and sequence of the works that are required. I know this might sound obvious. This is something which I had to learn the hard way by just sort of jumping in and getting on with stuff without really thinking about how it all came together. There's nothing more frustrating than having to undo a completed task just because you've overlooked that something else might need to be done first. So, for example, there's no point getting the plasterer in until you're sure that the electrician has finished rewiring. Otherwise, the electrician is just going to be cutting out and chasing through all of your brand new plaster. That is a sickening feeling, I can tell you. Another thing which I always used to forget is to get the chippy to allow for carpets when hanging the doors. And I'm embarrassed to say that on several occasions, the carpet fitters have put in new carpets. And then I found that all the doors had to be taken off and planed down so that the doors would open and close again. Very frustrating, and it all takes up time and creates extra cost. Here's another small thing that you don't want to overlook. I can tell you that when you're settling down to a day's work, it's highly irritating to find that you've got to the project and you've forgotten to take with you all the little luxuries that we take for granted at home. And this list is going to include things like tea and coffee, milk, sugar, teaspoons, mugs, washing up liquid so that the dirty mugs don't just start to pile up in your new kitchen, Soap, tea towels, a towel, a radio, and last but not least, I hate to say it, but yes, toilet paper for your contractors. Not quite as urgent, but in their time also essential, are cleaning solutions of various types. Bleach for the toilet, dusters, rubble sacks, and a decent heavyweight vacuum cleaner. To save a lot of grief, especially with your builders, these should be the first things that you take to the site. But they're easy to overlook when your mind's focused on the big stuff like ordering the kitchen or ordering the bathroom, or ordering a full set of new double glazed windows. So there you are, there's my top 10 tips of things to do and things not to do. And when you hear a list like this, this might make it all sound very daunting. But don't think that renovating a property is beyond your abilities. I know that you can do this. You really don't need to be a builder or a handyman. In fact, you actually don't need any special qualifications at all, because remember, you shouldn't be doing the work yourself anyway. Your role is just as project manager, or even you could get a project manager into project manage it, and your role is then just going off and finding the deals or finding the JV finance. There's plenty of people who've got the right skills and the experience that you need who you can subcontract all of this to, leaving you with the time to look for the next deal. All you really need is a desire to do it and a willingness to plan and prepare properly and to understand what you're trying to achieve. Are you going to flip the property by selling it or are you going to keep it and hold it and rent it out? In which case you need to be making sure that you're doing the things which are going to help you 
to get the finance when you refinance it. So anyway, I hope that you found that helpful. If you want to get in touch, if you've got any comments, if you want to tell us about some of the refurbs that you're working on, go on to the Progressive Facebook group, tag me in, hopefully I'll see that and we can have a little bit of a chat about stuff. And don't forget, you can find me over at www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk, all one word, The Property Teacher. Look forward to seeing you there. But until next time, here's to successful property investing.